Sorry, everyone. My dog. poetry yeah thanks yeah so uh you are pretty prevalent in the poetry scene out here um to me it, it actually seems like you sort of pops out of nowhere um that's probably not true obviously but i just from my perspective you know had been going to several open mics and then out of nowhere it's like this this new dude who has awesome poetry just started popping up and uh, that's you obviously but thanks. um <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, I mean, I I did kind of just come out of nowhere. Is uh, I'd always sort of written and, um, but for a while I'd had a kind of dry spell, I guess, and then, um, you know, just focusing on work and, um, and just started writing again. And then I was like, I need to share this. I need to get it out there. I need to meet other people that do this as well. Cause so. It's like, I'm going to do as many of these things as I can. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's interesting about writing. Um, I know I know it's different for everyone, and I've heard writers say, you know, well, there's no such thing as writer's block, and you just got to move through it, and you should write every day. And, you know, I mean, that's true, and I, I definitely strive for that. Um, but I think, it's, I think it's hard. I mean, there's definitely times, you know, the thing that you just said, the dry spells, you know, it's – I – I experienced that and it's it's really tough you know and it's hard for me to want to even engage with with other poets and I think the only thing that really saves me from that uh, isolation is the fact that you know this podcast for one um, hosting an open mic you know it's like I'm forced into doing something every month you know but if I didn't do those things I think that I would definitely just kind of fall off the wagon and disappear <laughs> so I don't know um, what's your experience with that? Like, uh, you're just, your so, sort of relationship with writing over time. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's like most people, well, I don't know. I mean, it's a, it's a form of therapy almost. Um, but, but more than that, um, it's nice to like help understand your feelings by, by putting them down and trying to make them, um, not just like a, you know, I could never really just like diary or journal, um, because I always felt like I already know all the things that I need to write. I mean, but the process of, of creating a poem is a sort of a discovery um, and and play. I don't know. It's it's a it's a it's a really good way to handle like the stuff that you're going through or stuff that's on your mind. Yeah. 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 To that degree, it's it's always interesting hearing what people have to say. I mean, there's such a variety of topics and and voices and personalities that you get with poetry, um, and it's just interesting. It's 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 therapeutic, like you said, but being in a room with so many different poets and just hearing what they have to say, it's it's a really interesting dive into like the psyche of like just human life and experience as well, which I really love about poetry. I mean. 
you, I mean, all art, all art, I think is like that. Um, if you're looking for it, yeah. it's just like a really good snapshot of, of psychology in a way. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, like, yeah, the sharing and hearing the other, other people's voices, um, you know, is a, uh, particularly like, you know, you get to, you get to know folks through their writing and, and understand what they're working through or, or even what their mission is. And I, I can't help but think of Tom, the world poet, you know, and like yeah. his mission is to, you know, spread, spread poetry at the very least. I, I can't speak for him, but he's, <laughs> he's always on message. Um, and it's really beautiful. Yeah. 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 Uh, well, if, if anybody's listening and doesn't know who Tom is, he was on uh, this podcast, I think episode two. Um, but yeah, he just, he lives and breathes poetry. I mean, the man, he, I mean, he just in ca casual conversation, it's like, he's just always slinging some sort of rhyme or speaking poetically. I just, I think he just breathes it all, all day, every day, constantly. It's, yeah. yeah and in his freestyle po poetry at open mics, it's always, it's like he's just observing the room around him and just kind of taking in what's happening in the moment and then he just goes off and it's always so prevalent and so poignant to to just what's happening now and it's I'm always just kind of amazed I don't know how he does that <laughs> it's just crazy yeah but I mean here he's told a few stories and I mean I think it, from an early age he was um he was doing this sort of stuff and and uh like he was telling you he's like oh you'd fit in really great with these pagan friends of mine and <laughs> <laughs> you're a pagan <laughs> <laughs> yeah and i'm like yeah, i dig paganism it's yeah cool um, <laughs> like connections mm -hmm. to the earth and like I, mean, I think that's that's the sort of thing that we've lost is that that connection to i mean you know we, we don't feel connected to the earth anymore not not in like some like hippy dippy way but there was there was actually like meaning to that connection and yeah, it's it's interesting to to find people that can still that can still experience it and it's really important yeah i mean everything about the world around us is it's it's very easy to to get further and further away from that um connection and it's almost like you have to really try to get into that space, into like the solitary sort of mindfulness that it takes to, I don't know, just to reach that. And it's, it's, it's weird that you have to try that hard, I think. Um, then again, it's not weird. It's just the world we live in now, I suppose. Yeah, as Deleuze and Guattari say, it's the body without organs. And we've given trading in our Mother Earth uh, for the the body of the earth for the body without organs, which is like society's machinic culture. Um, we're all plugged in, you know, got our laptops and cell phones and earbuds. Um, you know, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy. The machine is, is, I was just at a coffee shop called machine head. Welcome to the machine. You know, and it's like, yeah, welcome. Like we traded that in and, 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 you know, I think like there's something about, embracing that as well it's not necessarily like oh no like mourning the the lost earth but you know like maybe there's uh we can embrace this machinic world that we've built and and thrive in spite of that disconnect um. it's weird it's like to me i don't know there's almost like a, a veil of like this dy dystopian air to it all because it's so thin and it's so it feels unsustainable 
but then it seems so it seems like some sort of like hard truth all this technology that we rely on so much and when you really think about it I feel like at any given moment it could all just disappear and crumble it's it just doesn't seem that sustainable when you really boil it down and it's it's just weird yeah it's I mean you can see it in Hollywood right the obsession with like the end times and Armageddon and like there's so many yeah. movies like we're all kind of like it's our paranoid um delusion is like we all know we know like deep down that this could just fall apart yeah um, yeah I also feel like there's an obsession right now with um you know like different uh like different states of um consciousness like um you know like well what if we all are just like living in some sort of like matrix matrix like um reality like what if we all are you know like living in some sort of like dreamlike state and like you know we're just plugged into some other like i don't know alternate reality or you know what i mean i feel like that that kind of talk is really maybe it's just the stuff i listen to i don't know i just feel like that's floating around a lot more yeah. recently and people are kind of adopting this like escapism sort of mentality it's it's just kind of are you feeling that or is that just me i don't know uh, of course yeah. i mean i mean I, and you know i really fell in love with the philosopher baudrillard who like has you know wrote wrote the book on this whole thing well since of the simulation um baudrillard wrote a book called simulation and simulacra um i got through about 100 pages of it i'm gonna return to it the, the only like the problem i've um okay yeah so i mean just a quick rundown is that i mean he hated the matrix because like this whole notion that there's some escape from it that you can wake up from it um from the simulation um is kind of laughable and introduces this whole like you know platonic christian sort of like you know separation um that there is sort of that there is a waking up um you know and i mean in his idea like he kind of has this whole like kind of genealogy of, of how the simulation developed and you know it's kind of like the, the rough and dry bit is you know first there was a sort of divine experience um that was you know and we all experienced the, the ineffable you know it's like I, I don't know how to put that in words it was so powerful um it was mystical even um and that that experience gets put into a sign and that sign is like you know god or or some idol um and then as the generations pass that experience that was put was like put down and represented through the sign um kind of lost its reference and so like this this is a process that develops over time and you know we we lose track of society keeps referencing these pasts um, these past signs that no longer have the original meaning, and we all do homage to these to these signs. Deleuze and Guattari call it the the despotic signifier, um, but that uh, you know it just keeps going, and nobody actually is has a real connection to to all these things anymore. Um, and that's sort of the bummer about it is that it's like it does kind of I, I you know you you, you kind of get the sense of like well if it's all just a simulation then what's the point um and i think that's that's uh that would be a really cynical and depressing place to end up um because yeah who wants to 
who wants to lose track of all all that's real in the world um well even if it was a simulation i mean it's it's kind of a a weird place to end on like that nothing really matters i mean because you're still even if that were the case i mean there still is a conscious um experience happening and and there's still a point to you know suffering at the end of it all and a point to meaning um in everything that we do if you want to argue that i mean you can't just say well there's no point let's just like throw it all away because i mean if this is all we have simulation or not then i mean like what do you do with that i don't think it really matters at the end of the day yeah, and I, I think it's, I mean, I think there's a, uh, this is where I think that, you know, obviously creativity and, and writing is is our way of kind of re, you know, re-territorializing, to use the Deleuzian language um, on from an authentic point of view, right? So, like, say, yeah, there's a bunch of words like, like government um, or, like, religion that don't really mean anything to anybody anymore, but I can write a piece that is that has meaning to someone beyond just myself and that's that's really powerful and I, I think that's like the this whole notion of like giving giving voice to your own words um is a way of like reclaiming words themselves and signs and um i think that's kind of why like talk therapy works for instance is like you know it's it's sort of this big you know that was the big freudian discussion is discovery is like oh if you actually talk about things that are bothering you then you might actually sort of come to some kind of like um some some way of getting beyond those those problems that you have um and i think that's that's because it's you're putting you're using your own words to formulate your experience in society and, and in reality as opposed to just having all of that put upon you and, and being like a slave to other signs that aren't yours. Um, yeah. And sort of taking ownership of the own, of your own thoughts and conscious experiences actually happening and sort of reorganizing it for yourself. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, well, within, within the poetry and, and the writing that I've heard from you, you, you have a lot of like philosophical based, ideas um sort of conscious like experiential themes throughout your writing it seems like um and i know you're into philosophy quite a bit um so tell me how did you get into all that what was the path for you yeah i mean i think like earliest on i remember my like talking to my one of my older brothers and and he had this this kind of like thing about time and how like you know there only is a kind of a present i don't know i was like in fourth grade or something i remember like getting obsessed with this idea that there is no future there's no past there's only like the present and the present is continually passing um so the second you say the present it's now it's it's then in the past and i always thought that was kind of cool um and uh i don't know in high school i had a really neat class and we read a lot of cool stuff um and um kind of you know, like had this. I remember coming up with this idea of the spectrum of certainty, um, the spectrum of assurity, um, and how like nothing is certain one way or the other, but but you can be more or less certain about things. Um, it's always a gamble. Yeah. It's always a risk, no matter what. I mean, yeah, it's 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 not to be like a relativist. Like I think obviously, like relativism is self defeating, but um, but that like there are sort of 
different levels of certainty that you can have about things. Um, and it's coming to terms with that is really powerful. Um, I think it gives you like a, a way to lead, make your own decisions about life. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, then I went to school and, you know, I went to Notre Dame and there was a really great program there called the Program of Liberal Studies. Um, and I took a little like intro class into it and we read a bunch of Plato um, and just kind of like, oh, this dude Socrates is really badass. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and I don't know, I got, I kind of like went down, a, like, like I went down the, I mean, you know, looking back at it, I'm like, oh shoot, I, that was the wrong path. But I, I kind of went platonic and thought about that whole like, oh, there is the supreme, there is an ideal, there is like a, a, a capital T truth and, you know, capital G good and, and that just like dovetailed fine with all the religion I'd been given and, and it kind of filled it out a lot for me. Mm. Um, and, uh, but yeah, so I, I mean, you know, you know, as, as most uh, people who like philosophy, you finally discover Nietzsche and realize that it was, it's like, he just takes a sledgehammer to all of that and it's a super liberating and destructive, um, kind of thing. But, uh, but yeah, I think, I think uh, he's still one of my one of my favorites, Mr. Nietzsche. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I I shamefully have not dove deep into no, no too too much uh, I won't have philosophy. It. Fuck shame. And so that's, that's yeah. another like con- emotional like emotion that's more about control than than real feelings. Oh you know? yeah. It's a powerful shame. One. Yeah. Shame is a weird emotion. Fear, regret, there are all these negative ones, that, which I think is like, um, you know, I've been, uh, there's this really, I, there's this idea I picked up from D.H. Lawrence that, you know, like love is, or hate is love turned back on itself. Um, you know, that like, you know, if we're like, if we're kind of like have machine like souls, or I mean, our souls are like a machine, you know, they have an in, like, and, and desire and passion are the engines um, for that machine. Um, then like n- all this negative stuff is like kinks in the machines or like the machine breaking down. Um, but to like, but to take it back is that, that like hate is just love turned back on itself. And I imagine you could probably come up with something about shame and fear and all that. Like shame. hate is love turned back on itself. Um, I want to elaborate on that. Yeah. So actually I just, kind of stumbled upon this this idea I, I mean this is in dh lawrence but um it kind of finds its expression in the bible um through the cain and abel story um it's kind of it's kind of beautiful um because god brought hate into the world um so you know cain and abel um both gave like offerings to god um cain was a was a farmer and abel was a was a shepherd and kind of a he had livestock um and so his abel's sacrifice to god was like blood and fat um and meat right mm-hmm. and cain's was like the fruit of his labor you know literal like fruit and vegetables and god turned it away from him he said no i won't i won't take this offering um and you know that that wasn't so so if you say that Cain was offering his love to God through this sacrifice God's rejection of that sacrifice was was a turning that love back upon itself and it led to hate and Cain and Abel bore 
for the pain, right? Like he was, he was murdered by Cain. Um, I think it's a, it's a really great expression of that idea. Um, obviously the Bible can be interpreted many ways, some better than others. That's interesting. Do you think the root of all hate then is something to do with, um, maybe just rejection of, of the self? And turned outward towards society due to like obviously maybe a string of, of other events but I mean to truly I mean hate is such a weird emotion but the true essence of actual hate because people sling that word around a lot oh I hate burritos or you know I don't know yeah. uh, but you know like oh I hate this person and it's like I don't really think people understand like what that actually means to truly hate something but getting down to like the real essence of what hate is i'm not even sure if i understand understand it fully right yeah it's i mean pretty it's, heavy it's a powerful emotion obviously it's trivialized with like burritos and stuff um but like <laughs> you know it's, it's, it's right up there with awesome <laughs> i don't know yeah um but uh i mean the other just there's another i mean i was reading a book about like debt and it talks about how um i mean the the background to that story could also be that you know like um, you know, the, the original writers of the Bible were like shepherds and they looked down on, on like farmers and like city dwellers. And so they were like these pastoral type communities. And, and so that, that story was about like, um, showing that, you know, God favored the pastoral peoples over the agrarian types. Um, it's so contradictory. Sorry. I'm like bagging on. I don't know. It's a wild I just have a hard time. Like, which God are we talking about in the, the Bible? Old Testament you know, God. well, yeah, I yeah. know. I just, whatever. Yeah. Anyway. There's a lot of them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. It's just, it's a hard thing to understand. It's very, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it's a. Like it's funny, like I was reading somewhere that like, you know, churches are the, because, you know, you look around and, you know, like it's kind of, you know, supposedly a lot of the society and, and you know, there's a lot of like Christianity in the society, right? Like mm. you see it looking around everywhere. It's just sort of informed by Christian beliefs. Um, but, uh, you know, you see a lot of like Christian behaviors, right? Um, you know, loving your neighbor while, you know, like they're throwing the homeless off the streets and where well. else? Where else are they gonna go? Yeah. But, but I mean, nonetheless, right? Like, so that's is that whole funny story about like Jesus stack the, the you know this there's like this, the the untold story of Jesus was he said he said to the people, don't do anything I say, and they all said we won't do anything you say, um, and that's that's sort of like the root of it all. But um, um, yeah, I think it's it's interesting, um, and so in that context what are churches and they're like you know in light of Nietzsche and the death of God they're like God's like tombs right we go and you know like it's like visiting your your grandma's tomb on the weekend um we all go pay respects to our dead God and then go about our our daily business um you know self self-centeredly whatever like however individualistically you know I mean in a sense I mean away from religion you I mean people have gods everywhere we worship so many different things you know yeah I mean I don't think I don't think we're quote-unquote ever going to be away from God um as long as we're 
you know, it's just part of our human nature, I think, um, psychologically speaking, and whatever you want to say about that. Um, and, you know, fear of death, I think that's inherently uh, a huge a huge thing. I don't know yeah. if it's ever going to go away as long as we have that. Yeah, I've been thinking about that a lot. I mean, I, I've, I was watching these, these are really good philosophy um, lectures by this guy, Rick Roderick, um, and they're all on YouTube. Um, and there's a website, rickroderick.com. But, um, like, he was he was talking about Kierkegaard, and, you know, like, Kierkegaard has this whole piece on, like, Kierkegaard focuses a lot on that whole fear of death thing. And, um, you know, like, our, our mortality is, like, um, what drives us to, you know, all this all this stuff and and i don't i don't buy it really i i don't think it's it almost just seems like a like some kind of like um you know it's a negative emotion fear is a negative emotion right like i mean we can see our end coming um and i i think it you know you can you can see this you know where people die happy right like and it's not like death has to be some you know terror Terror, terrorizing force um, that's overpowering our day-to-day actions, right? Like, um, I think that's that's only it's like pathological so to let to let fear of of a thing or even of death, right, guide your day-to-day actions. It's just it's not it's not saying yes to life um, to bring it back to Nietzsche, right? Well, like, it's like saying no to uh, something that hasn't happened, an, an unknown idea that you're you're putting life to which is it's kind of weird but it is certainly known right i mean right. we know it's going to happen and and I, I just watched this movie the seventh seal um i was really it's like the swedish film uh, it's it's that whole like um this knight coming back from the crusades and he and he's like death shows up and he's like i'm come for you and he's like wait wait maybe we should play a game of chess first and um so like the trope plays out in bill and ted's adventures and but anyways, um, like it's kind of weird because like the whole thing, he's like, I want to know what death is like. Um, and I was kind of like, that's sort of weird, right? Like, I mean, couldn't help but like, yeah, because it's like an obsession for him. He's like, I want to know. Tell me the secrets of death, death, you know, and um, I think it's I was thinking about it. You know, Foucault has this whole thing that knowledge is power um, and it's not some like, you know, um a scholarly thing right mm-hmm. um but uh, i couldn't help but think that maybe like this knight's obsession with with knowing about death was some some attempt to have power over it um and to therefore become immortal um i think that same kind of uh, trope is is in goethe uh, goethe's faust um where like you know that's that's one of the things that drives faust is this like desire to live kind of like under know what's know what's next yeah i think that's i think that's a huge part of it the not knowing you know our constant need for you know like we can be finally comfortable as long as we know and i think that's a huge part of it for people knowing that if we keep living right i mean like if there's immortality if there's a if there's an afterlife i mean yeah right yeah and and i think that's the most important thing to get rid of that notion um because it's like living like immortality is is real it, you know like we still know nietzsche's name he's immortal in that sense right like plato 
like um that was a big thing for him as well is just that like you know one way to to mat to to guarantee that people re- will remember your name is to do is to like you know do great things um yeah i mean you see that in our our, our media culture right now i mean social media it, it's a bit of a frenzy um but i mean just like people like on their instagram facebook pages personal pages i mean just like these idealized versions of themselves you know just to be just to be i don't know somehow remembered i think is what it's all about Mm -hmm. just like to have these like snapshots of you know just like this this life um that will be like in this time capsule that will never go away i mean that's like a sense of immortalization that everyone can have and tap into And you can be insta-famous. I mean, YouTube has made billionaires out of just, like, the average person. It's insane. Um, It's the commodification. We live in such a weird time. But, I mean, it's true. I mean, it's... We are, in a sense, like, immortalizing ourselves or trying to. Yeah, and that's... I I can't help but think, though, that it's not, like, an authentic kind of... You know, I mean, obviously, like... Inauthentic. Yeah, Yeah, totally. It is. So, but but you're right about. I think it's an interesting, yeah, super interesting insight. Like that, like it, that is kind of. I mean, they, I think they even call it like the timeline, and you know, like yeah. like there's an end to that line, so you better fill it up um, while you can. Yeah. Um, so that people will be able to remember you, but like the sheer volume of content being created is like I don't know. You know, you hear these numbers just like you know gigabytes every second get 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 created on YouTube. And, facebook so it's uh yeah it's 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 kind of kind of weird yeah i feel like we just went full circle like again going back to that whole technology being plugged in i mean how sustainable is it really i don't know yeah it's um yeah there's this really interesting like movement called like accelerationism that's 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 sort of like just embrace the machine right like um you can't fight it embrace the machine i feel like it's like a club (laughs) yeah don't say no man i mean there's got to be a song about that (laughs) yeah Um, yeah so i I don't know i think there's there's something there um yeah well um bringing it down a a notch um (laughs) when did you start writing poetry how did that enter your life like in high school yeah yeah um but it was like an assignment like um you know that same english teacher that got me into philosophy i I, we had some exercise in class and and there were like these three categories and we were all supposed to like i mean just sort of a little exercise you know get you thinking about what you wanted out of your life and and they were like it was like philosopher poet or like i don't know i don't like maybe like businessman i don't know some other third thing (laughs) And I was Are like, you going to be interesting, <laughs> intellectual, or boring? No. Yeah, right. I'm sorry. Like <laughs> spiritual, really maybe. No. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> maybe that was what it was, like religious. Um, and I was like, oh, shit, yeah, I'm a philosopher. Like, that's me. And and she knew me really well. She was, you know, a wise English teacher, as they tend to be. Um, and she was like, no, Dane, you're, you're a poet. And I'm like, hmm wrong <laughs> i wonder what she saw in you then that she was like you're a poet go to the other group it was the melancholy i was a it was, melancholy. i was a melancholic high school you're sad yeah you're a poet. <laughs> <laughs> uh yes um but um 
but no, I mean, I, yeah, so I wrote, I wrote some stuff in that class and I really enjoyed it, but, um, you know, I guess I didn't come back and back to it until college and I had some classes, some poetry classes and kind of really, you know, liked a few pieces and I just started writing a bit. Can you tell, cause you were saying that you, you kind of have these dry spells, do you know what it is for you that kind of, um, piques your interest as far as, you know, times that you do write and times that you don't, you know, like what it is that brings that on for you and what shuts it what shuts it down um yeah in that sense yeah that's a tough one you know i remember thinking like when i was you know when i was jumping into the poetry scene here in austin i was like man i love this so much why did i ever why, why didn't i do this um and um you know honestly i don't think it i think it's it's almost like it's it's an evolution instead of like an on and off like um and kind of thinking about what i wanted in my life and and the priorities that we put and i mean i know um that you know when i moved here to austin i was writing um and um but then i i needed to like make my living and i was like you know like last few dollars in my bank account and uh so yeah um i think like financial necessity is probably the death of poetry <laughs> um you know literally mm-hmm. um but um you know i guess like what what helped me get back into it was sort of realizing that i mean getting to a place sort of com- where i was comfortable um and also sort of burning out on on that that sort of you know that 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 whole job thing um but um i don't know also i mean but but thinking now i i think it's you know I could have I could have done that I didn't have to like um you know let the career you know in that in me and I, and I think um I think I can I can have both um and I don't know maybe someday I'll you know be able to make a career out of you know artistic endeavors that would be beautiful um but also it's nice to have a balance where I'm actually doing practical things and I tend to get like I don't know if it's always a good thing to just be doing uh, for me right to, to just be doing like poetry or creative stuff um um so it's i guess i, I to answer that yeah i was like i just had to I had to make some bucks um you know among other things going through a lot of life changes yeah the balance it's, it's tricky sometimes as a creative person yeah not the easiest world to get into you know you're not just going to be like i'm going to be a career poet and it's just going to work out and here we go (laughs) i mean it's just like kind of a grind for most people like that's easily said for musicians painters actors i mean the vast majority of everyone trying to do it is just kind of hustling and doing something else you know so yeah yeah yeah, but I do know what got me back in um, was, yeah, it was just all of my, you know, like, I think I had sort of dried up inside and wasn't very happy. And, and um, like, poetry was a, like, at first it was just a catharsis, right? It was like I could talk about how, like, depressed I was. <laughs> and and then people would be like, that was really good. I'm like, what? <laughs> I, I love was... your spirit. It's so great. <laughs> and you're yeah. like, oh, my God. <laughs> That was me working out some really heavy shit. Yeah. um, 
but I mean, moving beyond just like the catharsis, I think is really powerful too, um, where you can create for not just for the need to like get stuff off your chest, but to like put things out there that are, you know, inspiring in other ways. I think it's really important. Yeah. Yeah. I think so too. And that's, that's definitely what I get from your poetry. Um, at least I think I do. I mean, every time I've heard you read, I feel like I'm, I'm constantly just wanting to sit down and read it. And, you know, I'm thinking about what you said outside of just something personal. Like I'm understanding like, oh, that was like a definitely like anecdotal personal story. It's always about something intellectually sound or intellectually minded, um, you know, about life or ideas. Um that we can contemplate beyond ourselves. And I, I really appreciate that. It's a little, it's different. I feel like it's a different kind of writing that I haven't really experienced a lot in poetry, um, out here. And that's not sliding anyone else. It's just different. It's nice to have a different voice like that. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's great to hear. And sometimes, you know, as a, as a creator, you're like, I don't know if this is actually coming through and, 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 uh, yeah. tend to focus on the things that we're not, uh, that we like, I don't know, you know the self-critic the voice inside the, the critic voice inside of us um, yeah. kind of like takes over sometimes um, so it's awesome yeah it's great to hear that feedback yeah yeah thanks uh well speaking of do you have a maybe poem or two of your own that you'd like to read yeah for sure um cool. yeah this one's less poetic but i mean it, it has a kind of poetic it's a little more free verse but um yeah just poetry um so this is um, this one's called The Siren Song and the Danger of Angels. Um, in Greek mythology, sirens are depicted as a generative source. Like the sea they inhabit, they evoke abundance, allure, and desire. They are desire-producing machines. Mariners were drawn to them as a moth to a flame. Images of sirens from the first century BCE are often shown with large wings on their backs. Part bird, part woman, they are an undeniable precursor to angels. One reinscribed by the Christian sign of surrender to God. This is a treacherous transformation. How odd that these seducers who lure men to their deaths become transformed into divine beings, servants of God. One draws us to an abyss, the other to eternal unification with the supreme being. What would Nietzsche say of this symbolic evolution? Would he not couch this transformation in terms of a development of bad conscience? The ancient response to the world characterized by the siren shows its depths as dangerous yet fruitful. The siren's nature is the limits of humanity and its relation to nature, the unknowable the profound, a place of danger, but no doubt enticing and bountiful. Angels, on the other hand, are calm, supreme, sexless, eternal, pure light and goodness, untroubled by the burdens of free will. They transcend nature, calling men to a world that is not this world, totally ethereal, unknowable, indifferent to suffering, but for a calm acceptance of shit. Insofar as they appeal to another world, they are indifferent to this world. They invert Odysseus's trial. They call you to the void of the inhuman. The sirens, 
are a life-affirming sign, an acknowledgement of the dangers of the world, and through Odysseus, a desire to match the power of nature with our wit. Angels are a life-denying sign, a willful indifference to terrestrial realities, a call to not just glimpse the supernatural and live, but to utterly surrender to it, to be taken into it. Odysseus in his fateful past, bound and tied, experiences the horizons of humanity, utterly captured by the desiring flows of the sirens. He would surrender to it, to the absolute of death, but he remains connected to life by rope and the mast of his own isolation amidst wax-eared soldiers. Like the sirens, God's angels would lure Odysseus, but here begins their radical departure from mythology. Their call is sweet and fully endorsed. There is no fear, no brush with the unknown. In the stories told of angels, why would anyone deny their call? Why would anyone not surrender to their heavenly grace? They call us not to death, but some other worldliness. Angels would have Odysseus sink into the nothingness of death, transfigured into an imaginary bliss of total loss of self in God, his homecoming proffered as a sacrifice to nothing but an image, a sign. Instead, he chose to live and see and feel and be pulled towards the abyss of absolute desire and save himself still. The angel is desire transfigured into the myth of purity and eternity. It is fertile soil for consumerism. Thank you for sharing that one. Yeah. That was really cool. I really, I really, I wasn't expecting it. I mean, I don't know what I was expecting. Uh, when you said the title, I, I don't know. I was just very impressed by not only the contrast of the siren and the angel, um, but the, also just like the stark comparison between the two. Um, I really liked that. Yeah, as well. I was just just browsing. I don't know. I stumbled upon the Wikipedia article for the siren, and and like there was an image, you know, and I was like, that looks like an angel, and you know, I was just reading about it, and um, yeah, it's really common. Like they, I mean, they had bird feet, which is sort of weird, but mm. everything else, they just look like spitting image of angels. Um, and I just sort of got to thinking, um, yeah, and yeah, this piece came up. Yeah, I re there's one line that really stuck out to me that um, you said something about uh, the angels being um, unburdened by free will. Yeah. The however you said that. I, that that kind of concept really, I know. I just like I kept thinking about that when you said that, <laughs> just because it's it's so it seems like such a contradiction. You know the the way we talk about free will. Um, there's a lot of debate over that. You know, but being unburdened by free will as if free will is somehow a, a chain of, of, of awareness or something. I just, what, what did you mean by that? That's really interesting to me. Um, yeah. I mean like the burden of free will, right. It is hard to like, you know, take your life in your own hands. And, um, I mean, that's the whole, like, um, you know, like there's, there's an interpretation of the whole eating of the fruit, right. Where it wasn't, it was like before they ate of the, of the fruit of knowledge, fruit of knowledge, man was basically just like an animal, right? But but taking that bite, they all of a sudden became aware, um, and they wanted to be like God. Um, but 
but yeah, so it's, it's certainly a burden and, and, you know, the Bible carries that out, you know, like oh, they're thrust out of the garden and made to like make their own clothes and make their own way in the world. Um, so it's, it's certainly like, um, it is, it is a burden. Um, and I mean, this, the, the, the free, that burden that the angels have no free will is I think like a concept in theology. I'm not sure exactly where I pulled that, but I, I mean, I want to say it was maybe a Milton, um, in Paradise Lost. I mean, he also talks about them as being sexless, which is, you know, the other interesting bit is that they don't have sexual organs. They are just complete, like, servants of God all the way through. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, yeah, another interesting dis, you know, difference between the two images. Yeah. Yeah, that's... It's an interesting comparison. I like it. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> All right, cool. Um, well, I also have a segment where we share, we both share a piece from another writer that we both enjoy. Yeah. Um, do you have something? I do. All right. Yeah. I, um, this is, so I, I've been wanting to read more by him, but this is by Rumi. Um, he's an Islamic poet translation um, it's called every craftsman um, so I think this also goes well with the other poem too so it's really powerful for me I kind of like you know in my work I, I'm a I'm something of a craftsman what I do and I really enjoy that um, and um, it really spoke to me so yeah here goes I've said before that every craftsman searches for what's not there to practice his craft. A builder looks for the rotten hole where the roof caved in. A water carrier picks the empty pot. A carpenter stops at the house with no door. Workers rush towards some hint of emptiness, which they then start to fill. Their hope, though, is for emptiness, so don't think you must avoid it. It contains what you need. Dear soul, if you were not friends with the vast nothingness inside, Why would you always be casting your net into it and waiting so patiently? This invisible ocean has given you such abundance, but still you call it death, that which provides you sustenance and work. God has allowed some magical reversal to occur so that you see the scorpion pit as an object of desire and all the beautiful expanse around it as dangerous and swarming with snakes. This is how strange your fear of death and emptiness is, and how perverse the attachment to what you want. Now that you've heard me on your misapprehensions, dear friend, listen to Attar's story on the same subject. He strung the pearls of this about King Mahmud, how about the spoils of his Indian campaign there was a Hindu boy whom he adopted as a son. He educated and provided royally for the boy, and later made him vice-regent seated on a gold throne beside himself. One day he found the young man weeping. Why are you crying? You're the companion of an emperor. The entire nation is ranged out before you like stars that you command. The young man replied, I am remembering my mother and father and how they scared me as a child with threats of you. Oh no, he's headed for King Mahmud's court. Nothing could be more hellish. Where are they now when they should see me sitting here? 
This incident is about your fear of changing. You are the Hindu boy, Mahmud. Mahmud, which means praise to the end, is the spirit's poverty or emptiness. The mother and father are your attachment to beliefs and blood ties and desires and comforting habits. Don't listen to them. They seem to protect, but they imprison. They are your worst enemies. They make you afraid of living in emptiness. Someday you'll weep tears of delight in that court, remembering your mistaken parents. Know that your body nurtures the spirit, helps it grow, and gives it wrong advice. The body becomes, eventually, like a vest of chainmail in peaceful years, too hot in summer and too cold in winter. But the body's desires, in another way, are like an unpredictable associate whom you must be patient with. And that companion is helpful because patience expands your capacity to love and feel peace. The patience of a rose close to a thorn keeps it fragrant. It's patient that gives milk to the male camel still nursing in its third year. And patience is what the prophet shows us. The beauty of careful sewing on a shirt is the patience it contains. Friendship and loyalty have patience as the strength of their connection. Feeling lonely and ignoble indicates that you haven't been patient. But those who mix with God as honey blends with milk and say, anything that comes and goes, rises and sets, is not what I love. Else you'll be like a caravan fire left to flare itself out alongside of the road. Well, wow. There's a lot going There's on. There's a lot to unpack in that. Oh yeah. my God, I don't even know where to start. Like just the first few lines of that. Holy crap. Yeah, I often think like you could just make the poem out of the first part before it yeah. goes into the story. Yeah, mm. I I kind of got lost for a second and I don't even know how it transitioned into the story. Like I, I kind of want to read through that a few times. Yeah. That's nuts. Oh my gosh. And then all the philosophy at the end. Yeah. Yeah. Oh I, my God. That's heavy. Yeah. I mean, I really like, I mean, it, it goes really well with the stuff I'm reading now, but this whole notion that your desires are a way to like keep you and, and if you can be patient with your desires, mm -hmm. um, that it's a helpful companion, right? This patience coupled with what, you know, what you want. I love that. A helpful yeah. companion. It also helps strengthen your character, being able to, to sit sit with your desires and be patient through them. Yeah. Through time, I guess. Yeah. And then obviously the whole mother and father. I mean, this whole like, you know, like letting go of your parents and like they're, they seem to protect you, but they imprison you. Um, I think is really powerful. Um, means a lot to me. Yeah, they are your worst enemies. They make you afraid of living in emptiness. Um, yeah, and this like turning emptiness into like the thing that is that we're drawn to. It's it's like why worry why worry about death? Like we're drawn to this to like the same thing that like in in our work and what we do, we're drawn to the empty spaces. Like you were saying, you started this po podcast because no one there was there was an emptiness here in Austin around that. Um, so you were drawn to it right mm. yeah 
Yeah, I mean that that first part when they said or they he when he said you go to work um something about an emptiness just to fill it. I mean, I guess you could take that two ways. I took it so negative at first. You know, like there's an emptiness with your work and you're just going there to fill it. Like I just I took it so negatively. But I guess there's also like a positive aspect that to that too that you could oh, take away from. It's super positive. I, I mean, yeah. yeah, because like I don't know what like I I'm I write computer programs and I'm always like drawn to the stuff that you know like is missing like oh well someone hasn't solved this problem before like I want to try to I want to try to do that I want to try to figure that out and see what I can do yeah um and it it becomes like yeah it's it's like literally drawn into this gap that exists so that I can fill it um and so uh yeah it's it's kind of interesting yeah that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Thanks. Um, yeah, that's, that's a lot to think about. I'm going to listen to that and read it a lot. Um, so what what was it that you do for work exactly? You're a senior. You mentioned earlier you're a senior innovative something or yeah, another. Yeah, I have a really long title, but it's <laughs> I, I kind of like use, I, I mean, I, I'm on the innovation team at the company and um, try to use you know, software to help solve problems and do some machine learning work and, mm. um, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a fun job, uh, when I, when I get to do it. Yeah. Yeah. That's really cool. Uh, all right. Well, I will share a poem as well. Um, so this is from a chat book that I recently received it's with a a journal that i get uh called rattle rattle um i think they're just called rattle something rattle journal i don't know uh i really appreciate what they do um as far as uh poetry is concerned um they they try to incorporate you know all types of writing all types of styles um they as far as i know they read completely blind, so they publish any and all types of voices. Um, you know, they're a nonprofit, so submissions are always free. Cool. Um, I mean, I just, I don't know. They're just kind of, they seem like a huge supporter and proponent of poetry in general. They're based out of California. So anyway, they they also issue chapbooks um, from a poet, I think, every, I think maybe twice a year, every quarter, I'm not really sure. Um, but anyway, just, I got one of these chat books from, from them by this guy named Al Ortolani. And he has a couple of these types of poems in, in this chat book. And I wasn't really sure what the form was all about. So I looked it up. It's this form called a hyben. Have you ever heard of that? Mm-mm. Um, it's a Japanese form and the poem starts with just a prose poem, like a short prose poem. And then it ends with a haiku. And the prose is usually, um, you know, it's like an observational piece about something, uh, a reflection on something in life, or maybe just a reflection on your own thoughts or something. And then the haiku at the end is supposed to be a very, like, concentrated statement reflecting back on the prose. Um, So I just thought that that was a very cool and interesting um, poem form, and I wanted to read this because I was impacted by 
by it a lot. Cool. So this is called Girls' Choir by Al Ortolani. A dark-haired girl sits in the center of the choir room, pecking out songs on the piano. Her classmates are giggling through study hall, some lounging on the floor texting, studying their phone screens. Another has isolated herself and connects dots in AP English assignment. The girl at the piano returns to a fragment of a song which is reminiscent of McCartney's Golden Slumbers. She plays around the melody. Maybe her song is something else, something more modern. Nevertheless, the energy in the room settles, girl linked to girl at 10 a.m. Slits of sunlight through winter blinds dancing, blue fingernails. Mm. I don't know. <laughs> I that's think awesome. that's, yeah, I like it. Yeah. yeah Makes me uh, want to explore that form as far as writing goes. I like good imagery, too. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, lots of good imagery. I just thought it was funny. So, yeah. are you the one apart? How did you, uh, what connected you to the, to the piece? Um, well, I think I related to it in a way. Because in high school for me, because uh, well, I was in marching band and, and orchestra and all that, and the the band room slash orchestra room is connected like just by a door to the choir room, okay. and you know, like we would always like kind of like all the music kids would always like kind of cross over and like you know shoot the shit and just like whatever, yeah. um, and I just I don't know. There's always like kids like just music nerds like banging around on instruments and sitting around and I don't know just like that image of like you know these choir girls like sitting around and like working on stuff and just like talking and I don't know and just like I liked the haiku at the end you know like just like sunlight coming through a window girls talking blue fingernails I don't know it's just like it's such a silly haiku but it's just it really paints a scene about something so average this guy by the way I looked him up he's a he's a school high school teacher so you yeah. know, he's not just some creep writing about high school girls. No, uh, yeah. um, but, you know, it's just, um, <laughs> you know, it's like a real life moment. It's so simple. Like it, it kind of makes me think about the fact that poetry doesn't always have to be, um, you know, this really sort of like intense, difficult thing that you have to write about. Like it can really be just by about like life's most simple moments. And I think I'm trying to tell myself that more uh, within my own writing because I think I toss those ideas away a lot. You know, like I f emotionally, I think I feel really close to really, really simple moments. And I never I never think that they're worth writing about. Like, oh, that's not that's not good. It's not a good poetry topic. Like no one wants to read that. Uh, yeah. I uh, don't know how to write no about way. that. That's not good poetry, you know. But then here we are with someone who can write just awesome, awesome po poems about the most simple thing. And I there's other poets that do that, too. Like Frank O'Hara does that all the time a poet that I recently got into and I don't know I just think I need to remind myself that that's, that's definitely allowed and it's it's okay yeah, <laughs> and it's for cool sure. yeah yeah I was reading an interesting piece out of um I'm trying to remember the name of the podcast that's on my RSS feed uh, brain pickings that's uh, a really great website for just reflections on stuff and someone like there were there's this piece about a guy who had like this mission to like write about like beautiful like the things like grateful but just like beautiful moments in the day just and try to do it once a day mm -hmm. so like pick something that was beautiful and then turn it into a poem and I love that. 
yeah it was really like That's so cool it was really yeah it was like yeah you know and the whole reflection was like yeah there are beautiful things every day that we experience just like that um mm-hmm. and do i have a burger poem if you want to yeah i tried to capture yeah, totally, that yeah um it's just about a burger um yeah i was out with some friends and we were at a at a bar and there was a little um uh, food truck nearby and you know i ordered ordered a burger and it was really good <laughs> so, yeah. so i wrote a poem about it there's nothing better than like you just have like the best burger it's like you can't stop talking about it man it is, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so this is that it's called that burger with an egg on it <laughs> with an egg on it that burger with an egg on it bread so soft soaking up the yolk as i bite into hot cheese and meat my tongue delights in deliciousness as my hands soak in the warm grease flowing down my hand i dare not put it down until there's nothing left to hold i graciously thank the cook alone in a food truck taking orders and serving up greatness forgotten once consumed but for me i see him and remark on the fantasy of a burger now nourishing my body now satan thank you cooks of the world for keeping us well fed and smiling nice thanks (laughs) i feel like i could definitely like see and experience the grease and the yolk like dripping down my hands in that that was nice yeah yeah thanks yeah it was really good (laughs) i've never had a burger with an egg on it oh you're missing out i know it's fantastic between that poem and earlier this week i was with someone who ordered a burger with an egg on it i feel like this is like a sign like it's coming up a lot i think i need to get out there and experience this yeah yeah (laughs) yeah this was at um the drought house on a sunday yeah drought house and they had a yeah it's a cool bar nice yeah well um other than the hearsay poetry open mic which you'll be featuring at on friday january 10th are you performing anywhere people can come see you or anything like that yeah i mean i think i um, there's a chicago street poets i try to get to get out to that and and um i'm at um kick butt coffee from time to time um, depends on it's well, it's mm-hmm. fairly regularly and it's just like sundays are getting busy so yeah so yeah chicago street poets is uh this second tuesday of every month yep and kick butt is every single sunday which the time is always a little bit weird sometimes they switch it it's like seven to nine or eight to ten or yeah just kind of have to check it out but yeah they keep keep track of it on facebook yeah all right well cool um and can people find you on social media anywhere um yeah i don't don't (laughs) you're not plugged in dane i mean i do have a i do have a facebook account um it's fred meets they wouldn't let me be Frederick Nietzsche. Yeah. Which is Pla- probably plagiarizing. Yeah. Imposter. Probably, probably probably just a good thing. But yeah, I'm Fred Neats on there. I've got some friends on there. But okay. Yeah, I don't really publish my poems because I, I feel like I want them to be like experienced and not read. <laughs> That's interesting. I feel the opposite. Yeah. yeah. I might yeah, you know, I'm not I'm not tied to that, but I also just the thought of like people at work reading my stuff i don't really want that i don't know why i don't really like um i don't 
knows? Do people at work know you're a poet or not really? Some of my friends do. Yeah. But the okay. thought of like, you know, like, I don't know, people I report to or whatever, you know, from like corporation, yeah. military kind of thing. It's just not, you know, I might, I might write about things that include them and I, that would probably be not yeah. uh, helpful. So. <laughs> you get the stink eye when you go to work one day. Yeah. I'm like, yeah. oh no, why do they hate me this time? <laughs> I swear, like people in corporations are really... Anyways, we'll go off. It's another topic. Yeah. Podcast part two. Mm. All right. Well, thank you so much for being here. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Yep. And uh, anyone that's listening right now, if you think this podcast is awesome, which I hope you do, you can share it with your friends. You can leave a nice review. You can rate it and subscribe to it, which would be wonderful. So thanks for listening. Thanks. Bye.